Interested in real estate? How about wealth? Well, they go hand in hand. And here, you'll learn all about it. Welcome to Be The Bank, a podcast where we discuss and debate the topics centered around real estate investing. Your host, Justin Bogard, shares insights into investing in real estate to create real wealth and passive income for you and your family. He'll share stories of real estate investments done right, walk you through the process of owning a real estate note, and most importantly, educate you so you can be the bank. This is Be The Bank, brought to you by Bright Path Notes. Now, here's your host, Justin Bogard. Welcome back. You are now listening to episode number 19 of season four of the Be The Bank podcast. Today, I'm going to have my friend Richard Thornton on again, and we're going to be talking about, well, the things that people are talking about and the things that people are not talking about as it pertains to real estate and the current market and kind of direction that we're going in. So stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Bright Path Notes. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon. How are you, sir? I am doing very well. Thank you for asking. And how are you? Uh, Doing great. We finally had some rain out here in California this weekend. So everybody is happy for that. Um, That starts to dampen the fires. That's a good thing. I was just going to say that. Is there any fires or smoke now because of all the rain? Uh, you know, there's in some places in the state, there's still some, but there's uh, over 45 fires going right now in the state. So it's not a happy place. Is it all through the entire state or is it just certain parts of it? Uh, primarily mountain regions, Sierra Nevada, up in there. Okay. Well, California is a pretty big state. So mm-hmm. <clears throat> lots of places that have fires, right? That's right. All right. Well, Richard, thanks for being on again today. As you kind of heard me talk about in the opening package, I hear a lot from real estate agents. I hear a lot from real estate agents that really shouldn't be talking because they don't really know a lot as far as the macroeconomics is concerned as far as real estate and real estate investing. And I hear some people kind of predict things and they're kind of maybe embellishing or maybe going too far extreme on the other side. Um, We've been in such a great seller's market for so long. At the slightest tweak, the slightest change in the other direction, people just go bananas, in my opinion. They, they kind of go bananas, and it's not really – I don't think it's that necessary. Um, I can't imagine anybody embellishing things to make themselves sound smart. I just – Right. It's, it's like every time I see a real estate agent list something, I wish I had the descriptions that they do because they everything they, they sell or do, they have this most beautiful description about the property or the way it looks or how it – you know, it can work for you. And I always laugh on my breath going, what? yeah, nobody says anything negative about it, right? Why would they? It doesn't make sense. But it's just funny how some, if I hear the same real estate agent talk about a property, it's always the same description. And, oh, this is so beautiful, so immaculate. And you look at it, you're like, this is a plain Jane house. Like there's, there's a starter home. Like there's nothing. I wouldn't say there's anything beautiful about it. It's just, it's just a regular home. <laughs> right. Now, if I was looking at a eight million dollar mansion, I might say, yeah, that's a beautiful home. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess I just, I've I've lived in too many starter homes or seen too many starter homes. Anyways, Richard, that's not what we're talking about today. I'm talking about the real estate agent that tells me or tells a group of people how we are in a market that is a more buyer's market and we're we're going into a 
real estate recession or we're going into a real estate correction market. And I've actually heard this talk for quite some time and nothing hasn't really changed a whole lot. We're still kind of a seller's market right now. We're not really a buyer's market. Uh, we see the market cooling in certain areas faster than others. But in general, Richard, we're we're looking pretty good. The national delinquency rate is 2.89% at the end of July, which is a pretty darn good delinquency rate, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. The average has been between 4 to, I don't know, Richard, probably 3 to 5% is, is a really good national delinquency rate. And we're well below that. We're well below that even before um, COVID happened. So, Richard, I, I say this because <clears throat> I feel like there's a lot of misconception out there as far as what's going on in the market. Uh, you and I have talked about, yes, we both agree and we see that there's going to be more non-performing loans coming through the pipeline at some point, right? Because we had 8.2 uh, million forbearances go through and not all of them made it into a re-performing status or they resold the loan or they recasted the loan or they they got a different loan or they sold the property. Like we did, Not all of them did that. Let's just, let's just call it a half a, half a million maybe are in mm-hmm. serious delinquency trouble, meaning they're going through loss mitigation and they may end up going through foreclosure. So that sounds like a lot of loans, but if you spread that over the entire country, it's not that many. I mean, right. at worst, Richard, when we went through the real estate uh, debacle, I guess is what people call it, <clears throat> at least in my mind, that's what they call it. That was about 11% delinquency rate. And you saw about 250,000 foreclosures going through every month. It was like just just wheelbarrows of houses, if you will, going to the courthouse steps and just auctioning them off for sale. And right now, Richard, we only see between fifteen to 25,000 starts per month. Right. This is way different than what it was at our worst. It is way different than what it was during going through COVID because we had zero, right? <laughs> we right. didn't have any. So any number in the positive direction is going to skew a percentage that says, it's really bad right now if you just look at percentage numbers. <coughs> Excuse me. Sorry, I had to cough. But Richard, it's not really that bad, is it? I don't think so. Uh, I'm out here in California, and we don't see it yet. I mean, yes, the market is slowing a tad, uh, but the sky is not falling. Chicken little is not right. Um, so <laughs> uh, uh, things are, you know, those things that were overpriced to start with um, are softening a little bit. But we're still getting price. Uh, people are still getting offers um, at asking or slightly over, depending yeah. on um, uh, the, the different house and the desirability. So, no, I don't think um, we're not going crashing down here yet. Anyway. I, I wouldn't even consider this a buyer's market yet per se. I know I said that a few minutes ago, but I just want to get that point across. It's still a seller's market. Like, we don't have a balance inventory of, I think, what is it? A six-month supply of inventory is a healthy balance of uh, of inventory in general for real estate. Right. I think we're still leaning towards the uh, less than 30 days for houses to close, which is still an exceptionally fast rate of closing on these homes. Yeah, because you, you, demand is still there. Now, rates are going up, and that does affect um uh, people's ability to get financing. The mm-hmm. number that I heard recently is that for every full point that uh, mortgage, 30-year mortgage rates increase, um, there is a 
uh, 40% decrease in, in that pri- price bracket's ability. So when they say price bracket, they mean people in the 100 to 200,000, 200 to 300, um, depending. It, it dings 40% of that bracket, which is pretty significant. But still, all told, um, there's tons of demand out there for houses. Yeah. Even if the mortgage interest rate goes up another 2 or 3%, there, somebody still has to buy a house, right? It's it's just it's just right. bad timing that they get stuck in that window of having a higher interest rate, assuming the interest rate is going to drop back down to more of like a four or three percent in the future, which we don't know. Because the Fed's going to do what the Fed's going to do to establish inflation and deflation, they're going to try to control it the best they can with that rate. But in all actuality, the <clears throat> you know the the interest rate does change things, and you you projected those numbers that you just heard. You didn't project them. You, you commented on the numbers that you heard of, and that makes total sense. A one percent, one point. You say one point raise made mm-hmm. a forty percent drop in 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 certain classes of mm-hmm. buying bands. Mm-hmm. That's pretty interesting. But there's still people buying houses, right? There's still people have to buy houses, so it, it, it may eliminate some of the buying pool, and you may not have that much competition. And that may be why we seeing we're seeing a cooling of the market, and it's not days on market aren't as um, short as they used to be. But yeah, I just I just kind of wanted to vent a little bit, Richard, today, and just and touch us talk about how people's perception of what's going on is kind of skewed in in a way that's not really factual, in my opinion. Yeah, and I I know whenever we're talking about anything like this, um, I'm always. Um, hesitant to just believe the broad statement. Um, mm-hmm. I'll give you two quick examples. One is um, there's very different markets uh, in my town, town Petaluma, at California, just north of San Francisco here, on the west side versus the east side. Well, okay. why, why is that? Okay. The west side was primarily built uh, anywhere from, I'd say, 1860. Uh, to um, the mid-1920s. So you've got a lot of really older homes, um, not necessarily bigger, but it's a very different style than the east side. The east side wasn't built out until the 1960s through the the 90s um, and is still uh, being expanded into totally different markets. I mean, they're within uh, a mile of each other, but um, the west side uh, is much more desirous uh, people like old Nido Kino, you know, uh, Victorian style homes, uh, which is what this is. So your demand uh, is a lot uh, longer um, on this side as opposed to that side. That's interesting. So you have an East Petaluma and a West Petaluma, or still called Petaluma in general. You just have an imaginary line that divides East and it's West. It's just imagine. It's it's the Highway 101 divides uh, Petaluma, and so um, th- that is the 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 line that is demarcates east from west, but you know it's all called uh, Petaluma. So Highway 101 is the prime meridian for Petaluma. Yeah, pretty much so. <laughs> so 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 here's it right. So here's another prime meridian though. Okay, um, right now uh, my mom passed a while back, and she had lived in a condo. I don't usually act as realtor, but I am um, in this instance since I have my broker's license. Uh, and so she lived in a senior's community. So most of that market, I mean, they, in this particular market, this community, they have over 11,000 units. Um, most people buy all cash. 
So you'd say, well, so what difference does it make um, if uh, rates go up? Well, it doesn't affect the buyers in that market. There's a very latent effect when rates go up. What happens is, is that mom or dad want to sell their house that's outside of that area. They're okay. you know, two-bedroom, three-bedroom house. They can't get quite the price for it they want. Maybe, maybe they want to get that over asking, but now they can only get asking. Um, and so they sit on it for two or three months longer. So that slows down the, uh, eventually slows down the sales um, in that retirement community. It has, doesn't really affect the, the prices there. It um, affects the turnover because people are still paying all cash. So that's another good, good example of sort of a sub-market. Uh, so if people are really looking at to buy a house, they have to be very specific and ask about their sub-markets. That's interesting because you're exactly right. People don't actually take it more granular and talk about the sub-markets within their community. Even, I'm not sure how big Petaluma is as far as population. What is it, uh, 50,000 people? It's about 60,000. So 60, it's not, okay. not very big. Right. And your in, in in your view out there, right? And and here in the Midwest, if we were to say there's a, a city of fifty to sixty thousand people, that's a that's a pretty that's a pretty dense populated city. Right. Uh, for for a Midwest city. Unless you're in the main like the main state capital, like Indianapolis obviously would have more than fifty thousand. I'm talking about like you know, the Greenwoods, the, <coughs> the Fishers, the Carmels, the Zionsville, those are kind of like the the cities that are outskirts just outside of Indianapolis, but around the big loop, is, which is 465 here in Indiana, uh, those those will be nice size uh, areas. So it's, it's all relative, right? That's the word I was trying to think of. It's all relative to where you're at. <laughs> and by the way, those of you that want to watch the video version of this podcast, episode number 19, brought to you by Bright Path Notes, you can check out the Bright Path Notes YouTube channel, and that's where you can find the video and just see, check out what Richard and I are wearing today. He's got a nice... Little flannel shirt on. Looks like it's a little cool out there with the rain it's going on in California. And I got this uh, pretty Boilermaker, uh, just just a nice T-shirt with a ball hat, ball, baseball mm-hmm. hat on. Uh, so you can come check us out on the Bright Path Notes YouTube channel and also see all the other videos that we have to offer as well. So, Richard, I liked what you kind of digressed into the sub-markets. Um, I, I find that there is a specific neighborhood in downtown. It's a more of a historic type of area. It's called Fountain Square. And if you watch the HGTV shows, you'll know that there is a specific show called Good Bones, who is uh, two girls. Uh, it's a mother and a, and a daughter. I don't think the mother really is currently active in the flipping business right now, but the mother and daughter would flip houses there in Fountain Square, which is a historic area, kind of historical area in uh, downtown-ish uh, Fount- uh, Indianapolis. Mm-hmm. And so I was on that street flipping houses in about the 2017 <clears throat> era. And I found that it was a street by street um, issue. <laughs> right. We would buy a house for 10, 20, 30, $40,000. We may have to tear it down completely and then rebuild it. And we could see potential in it for selling three, four, five hundred thousand $500,000. Hmm. But then one or two streets over, you may see not very many flips going on. And the values over there, if you flip the house, may only be uh, 150 to 250 But the street that has more flips on it would be valued more three, four 400000 
So it's quite interesting how we, we had a very specific uh, dynamic within that market that, excuse me, that we were in. Because I was on the wrong street. I'm always on the wrong street, Richard. That's why I don't flip houses anymore. That's why I suck at it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't do that anymore. I lose my shirt on it if I, if I try to do one. But that I thought that was pretty interesting. So I like what you said about the submarkets. So why is it on a street-by-street basis? That's unusual. It is such a place that was so uh, hot for flippers to get in there and flip houses. My, I was talking to my grandmother, and she had one on, I think the street was called State Street. And she remembered that that was a house that she lived in in the 40s. Hmm. In the 30s and 40s, and she said she paid like five thousand dollars for the house. Right, and we were laughing, and she was talking about you know how much did you have to pay for you know this house? I was describing it. I was like, it's completely uh, demolished on the inside. There was no drywall. There's just studs up there. There's you know trash all over the place. There's no no ceiling. It was all torn down. But someone just couldn't finish the work, and so I bought it for I don't know. I want to say like twelve thousand dollars or something, and. And she was laughing because she had a fully furnished house and everything for brand new house for 5,000 in there just, you know, 70 years ago per se. So Uh, does one street have, I mean, if I hear something like that, I start to think, well, maybe one street for whatever reason has larger lots and larger houses or deeper lots, or is there some, something particular about the different streets and the way they were built out? Not that I can recall. The lots were pretty similar. They're very uh, shotgun-style houses to where it's just a very long house. The lots are very narrow, but they're very long uh, with, the, with, with the alleyways that run across. So I don't think it's a lot size. I really think it had to do with people kept flipping houses on the same street, and they built them up to where you're making this brand-new neighborhood, but it was on a street uh-huh. basis. And so if, if you only had – if let's say you had um, 35 houses on the street <clears> – <throat> Uh, both sides, uh, this this one street, and you had five or six houses that were being remodeled on that street, and they were being remodeled to new standards with new um, uh, millennium style houses. Let's just say the, the architecture is just more futuristic, and the designs aren't kind of like uh, colonial style; they're just more kind of new new era type of house builds. Mm-hmm. And you have another street that's maybe two streets away where you have maybe one going on at the same time. And mm-hmm. so it's, it, and there's a lot of eyesores around it. Mm-hmm. So because there's more eyesores around it, my belief was I was way too, I was about two years too early on a street that I did. Uh, I right. had houses on the same street <clears throat> and uh, that was a big mistake, but it's just funny how the different streets actually were seriously different as we, we drove by the houses were selling for a half a million dollars, two streets away, no different than what I was building. It was just, you know, they were they were at the right time. I was at the very wrong time on the street that I was on because there was there was nothing on my street that was really getting remodeled. So mm-hmm. it was a shame on me for not doing homework and seeing that. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that was quite interesting. So are flippers making money today? I think they're making money today, but they are not making money like they did ten years ago, mm-hmm. even six years ago. Mm-hmm. I think the in the Midwest here, I used to be pretty confident when we were flipping houses back then, about five, six years ago, that we could make $15,000 of profit per $100,000 of sales price. Oh, that's a good, good indicator. And then now it's more like maybe – I'm not flipping houses today. If I had to venture to guess, it would probably be like maybe 8000 to 5000 per 100000 mm-hmm. to flip a house. 
mm-hmm. and make the return on it. <clears throat> I just don't see them getting the blighted properties for such a big discount as they used to versus they are today because of the tighter inventory. So the, right. the flipper in our groups here locally in Indianapolis, they especially the small time flipper, they're, they're the ones that are really concerned because I think they're getting gobbled up in the wash and the bigger players are able to kind of, kind of get through this in far as volume because they can make their profit in volume as mm-hmm. opposed to the smaller flipper that may have, they had to really make their profit on a per deal basis. Right. So do you see there in your areas of the Midwest also, do you see uh, tech and the ability to work at home affecting housing prices? Cause I mean, my gosh, uh, if I were to be working for Microsoft or Google mm-hmm. or someplace like that, and I could make $300,000 a year and move to your area and buy a castle for 200000 Yeah, it seems to me that that would um, uh, seriously affect the uh, pricing of your houses there. It might. I, I don't know the answer to that question, really. That, that's a great question, and I, I, just, I just don't know the answer to it. Where, where I live is pretty further away, removed from Indianapolis. <clears throat> so I don't see the downtown Indianapolis area as much as I used to. My my previous co-host, Super E, she would have a better uh, landscape on that mm-hmm. as far as if that's really true. It sounds like it would be true. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of millennials and a lot of young people that like to live the downtown lifestyle. Like I want to walk everywhere. So they don't really have houses with garages. They may have a street parking or they may not have a vehicle at all. Maybe they just have a bicycle or something, or maybe they live in a condo downtown. They have a big parking garage, leave their vehicle in and just walk everywhere. But that's kind of the lifestyle of being in downtown Indianapolis. Cause the idea is just for you to walk to a lot of places. Um, not like a New York or a Chicago, you know, like, like a big city, but there's, there's, it's more um, spread out, I guess, in Indianapolis, it's kind of spread apart instead of squished all together in, in right. tight spaces. Right. So I, the reason I asked is because there's a, a town here in the mm, Sierra Nevada. It's not in the foothills. It's actually physically in the Sierra Nevada. It's about mm-hmm. 8,000 uh, feet up in terms of elevation. And it was a small, sleepy mining town at one point. And uh, what several developers in the area decided to do is they – um, actually sponsored some coffee houses and things like that. Okay. That intentionally had um, workspace for digital nomads. Um, and then they built up a um, live work office type thing. So they created a nucleus and basically created a, a when you drive up to that town, um, it says, you know, li, li, um, what was it? live here and, and, and work in tech. Uh, and it's made a huge difference in their real estate market. That's catchy. I like that. Mm-hmm. I can see that working. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely see that working. All right, Richard. Thanks for being on again today. This is episode number 19 brought to you by Bright Path Notes. And we are out of time. So we're going to just jump off and get right into the transition. And we will see you. Uh, well, Richard, I'll probably have you on again for the next episode on episode number 20. I would love it. I would love it. All right. Don't forget to check out the Bright Path Notes YouTube channel so you can see the video cast of this podcast as well. Until next time, guys, see you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Be The Bank. We hope you learned something from today's show. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us. Plus, check out our Bright Path Notes channel on YouTube and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Be The Bank 
and on Instagram at Be The Bank Podcast. Be The Bank is sponsored by Bright Path Notes. Thanks again for listening.